Welcome to High Heels in Politics, the podcast where we talk with the leaders of Ohio and beyond. And now, your host, Marianne Christie. Welcome to High Heels in Politics. Are there drug problems in Cincinnati? Our guest has an extensive career in law enforcement, and we'll discuss his in-depth experience with drug trafficking in Cincinnati. He'll discuss how law enforcement works to conduct investigation and surveillances with street dealers and what role do informants play. The U.S. has the highest rate of illicit use of drugs from around the world. And according to the DEA, the chief threat in the United States are Mexican drug dealers. The addition of OxyContin became a modern day drug problem. It was the introduction of OxyContin, a prescription, remember, a prescription drug in the 1990s that was misrepresented by Purdue Pharma to its addictive qualities. Our guest, Doug Abram, work career includes Commander of DART. DART is the Drug Abuse Reduction Task Force. He's been a police officer, detective, Hamilton County deputy sheriff, and with the Hamilton County coroner's office. He holds an undergraduate degree from the University of Cincinnati and a master's degree from the University of Louisville, both in criminal justice. He served on active duty in the U.S. Army and the U.S. Army Reserves. Doug has exhibited in his work, a strong work ethic, common sense, and a deep respect for the law and individual rights. Welcome, Doug, and thank you for your military and community service. You have been, my question is, you've been in the criminal justice field in your adult life. What was the driving force to pursue a career in law enforcement? First, thank you, Marianne, for having me today. I really appreciate that. I think it it comes from service first with the military and then with being a police officer. And like you said, I started in corrections first, but basically I just wanted to help people. That was the driving factor. Let's go on about drug enforcement. What objectives do police establish for drug enforcement? Are there alternatives to arrest and how well do informants work to assist police? I guess I'll break it down like this with some experiences in reference to the use of informants and the way that an individual would work in a task force. So I worked in a task force, and they're basically individuals who want to work as an informant. That would happen in two different ways. First, it would be under case consideration, and that means that they have been charged with a crime somewhere and they want to work that crime off. So they would be as to myself or another agent, and we would interview those people and see if they have viable targets, people that are selling drugs, and then we would investigate that. The other would be to be a paid informant. And sometimes you see people like that on on TV and TV shows, or maybe because they they want the community, they want to help the community. But that's how dealing with informants starts. These individuals end up getting arrested for a, a case. Is there alternatives to arrests when you find people selling drugs? In Hamilton County, at least with the task force and being a police officer, and let's separate them. If I was working on the street as a police officer and, and I found you in possession of drugs, I would arrest you 99.9% of the time. If you are identified as a target, 
when I was working in narcotics and we did a search warrant at your house or something like that means you were identified before and there would be ways that you could work that case off like I was talking about being an informant. And by working that case off, I mean that you are going to go per se, up the food chain. So if you are a dealer from the street, you would go up the chain into ounce dealers and, and go up the chain rather than down the chain. So there are different philosophies for that in reference to drug charges and the way that those are enforced. But usually when you are caught with narcotics, and at least in the state of Ohio, you're going to be charged. Okay. Cincinnati is like many other cities, has reported an increase in drugs. What drugs are on the Cincinnati streets, and has there been an increase in younger addicts? I would have to say from the 2000s up until now, we have all, obviously, we've seen the heroin, cocaine, methamphetamine, and fentanyl push here from after 1996 when the FDA approved Oxycontin. Those are all on the streets right now. They are in an abundance meaning that they can be found pretty much anywhere that you want to find them. It has been back and forth over the years. When I first started in 2000 and a little bit earlier, heroin was not as prevalent here on the streets as cocaine or crack or even meth. And there's been a pendulum swing back and forth, depending on who has brought these drugs into our country, the different routes. And the, these routes were from Mexico, from Colombia, that the cocaine were coming in. And then Lo and behold, 10 years ago, here comes heroin and things of that nature. But those are the main ones that are coming in right now. And I know you're talking about younger addicts. It's looking, it's always been this way. Marijuana is, and I don't want to always use the term a gateway drug, but it seems that everyone that I interviewed in the backseat of my car after I arrested and said, hey, how did you get started in drugs? They would say, I started smoking marijuana. So I don't want to always use the gateway drug, but I want to say that is probably the most prevalent. Number two is these young juveniles are getting into their parents' medicine cabinets and finding drugs that haven't been taken, and they're they're experimenting with those drugs too. So there has been a push there to try to educate you, saying, hey, this is not appropriate, whether it's Adderall or some medication like that. Oh, no, I agree with you, Doug, because when I've had any surgery, even over the past 20 years, every doctor gave me Percocet. I says, I don't think I need, I, I think I can just use like Tylenol. And no, but I always got a full prescription. I said, I better take it. What if it's the pain is great? And then I've ended up, almost was going to give the Percocet to my grandkids and I decided, oh, no, Correct. that's nothing. That'll be trouble for you forever. Correct. But this is the problem. And like you said before, so they're prescribing you medicine on a 30-day basis. Correct. Correct. And that's and that, and we'll circle back around because that's exactly the problem, what we ran into with the Oxycontin. So we were getting these prescriptions and people were getting prescriptions for 30 days and they were going out and getting more prescriptions and these doctors were writing more and more. But we can circle back around to that. But exactly what you're saying, these this medication is sitting in people's yeah. cabinets. And I served on workers' comp, and we covered 17 southwestern counties. And there were people at times, and this was uh, like 2000, and people would come in and say, that doctor never even sees me. They just hand me another prescription. Correct. But you know what? You'd see maybe one person... Every three or four months, it said something like that. 
you're not going to go out and do any investigating, see if that's true or not. So, Correct. What is the difference between the legal and illegal drugs? The legal drug, and use your Percocet for an example, right? Yeah. So Percocet's a legal drug. And like you said, hey, I wanted to give it to someone. That, in essence, it becomes an illegal drug, right? It, you are now trafficking in a narcotic. The legal drug, it's okay for you, to, the Percocet, but when you give it to the grandkid or your son or something, then it, be, it would become an illegal transaction and it would be drug trafficking. An illegal drug is obviously a contro- controlled substance, but does not include a controlled substance that is legally possessed or used under supervision of a licensed healthcare professional. No different than legal prescriptions over the counter. They're legally obtained and their use and purpose for which they have intended by the manufacturer. So you follow the something you get, aspirin and stuff like that, that would be your legal drug. Obviously, drugs have been broken into schedules, like Schedule 1 narcotic, Schedule 2 narcotic, and they are illegal drugs. But a Schedule 2 narcotic, even though they may sound illegal, but they do have a medical um, use for them. If you go see the dentist, most of your medicine that you use for in your mouth is has some type of base and reference. I'm not going to say cocaine, but basically cocaine is a schedule two where it has some components about that. Put your mouth asleep in your nose when you have surgery. Mental falls into that very thing. Correct. I had surgery recently and they use fentanyl. I was amazed. Correct. Yeah. And fentanyl does have a medical use to it in reference to, to sleep. Why are some people addicted to drugs and how do people overcome them? People, I think, start using them recreationally. I've talked to some people sitting in the backseat of my car. I've interviewed some informants. And basically they say, hey, when I was doing like whichever one that was, I was using cocaine or I was using heroin, they would set parameters on themselves saying, hey, if I don't do this, then I'm not an addict. Meaning... Hey, if I get up for work, then I'm not an addict. If I'm not selling my body, then I'm not an addict. If I'm not selling everything else that I own, then I'm not an addict. I think that with heroin, the body has to, it needs the drugs to, it needs the heroin to function. If not, people in the term is used dope sick. So they get sick, they get violently ill. And I think that's what keeps drawing them back into their addiction. I don't think anyone has pinpointed why some people could use some drugs and others could use some drugs and one could walk away from it and the other, it kills them. I don't think there's any study that's been done out there that anyone can answer the question. I think maybe people have incidents in their lifetime that set them in the course to say, I'm never going to do it again. I had a woman, I stopped on a traffic stop about four years ago. And I remember I stopped her and she was a passenger in the car. And I walked up to the side of the car and I peeked in and I was going to ask her for a driver's license. And she literally looked like a zombie. She looked like she was dead sitting there. And I'm like, are you okay? And she goes, yeah, I'm okay. And she's only the passenger. I was focusing on the driver because they were speeding. So I had a conversation with her. She was basically wanted out of another jurisdiction. I brought her back to my car and talked to her. She was a 24-year-old woman. And I said, tell me what's going on. She goes, I had an experience over the last couple of days. And I said, what was that? She goes, my friends dumped me at the Fort Hamilton Hughes Hospital. She got, I was naked only with my bra on. They didn't know my name for three days because I overdosed. And I said, really? And she goes, yep. And I said, well, tell me, I said, tell me how many times you overdosed. She goes, I've overdosed 26 times. She goes, this will never happen again. She goes, those people threw me out of the car like I was a piece of garbage and threw me right. And they thought I was dead. And the hospital didn't even know who I was. 
And she goes, I've learned my lesson. And it may take an incident like that for people. And then some people go back to it the next day. Correct. This woman had kids because I remember talking to her and she goes, I have to get off of this merry-go-round. I said, I understand. Doug, now the United States seems to be the major country around the world in the use of addictive drugs. Why is that? Our thirst for nar- illegal narcotics ranks number one in the world. Everyone knows that our, uh, the American public's lust for cocaine and heroin, and we are being targeted, obviously, by Mexican cartels and Colombian cartels to bring the drugs here. We have an excess of money. I am not sure why that is, but it is a supply and demand type process here where there is a demand we continue to get drugs and it's been a cycle, right? So it wasn't just, it's been heroin now, but it was the cycle in the eighties was cocaine. And then what happened is we went to a crack and then we're going to go because we started cooking meth at home and now we're into heroin. And it was a perfect storm for Oxycontin and the addicts of what has transpired here with the pharmaceutical part. And then the outbreak of all the heroin being brought into the country also. We have a unquenchable thirst for narcotics in in this country, not just in Ohio. It is countrywide, and that's what we're seeing. Has the United States government worked with Mexico to stop these drugs? We have, and the more information that's been put out and that I've studied, and I've even written about in some college papers, we continue to do some interdiction work. A lot of money's paid in our interdiction. But our country to this day, we cannot tell you how much cocaine comes into this country. We cannot tell you how much heroin comes into this country. We can only have best guesses. And they're talking 150 metric tons a year of cocaine and heroin in, into our country. So it is astronomical, the illegal drugs that are coming into this country. I read an article just yesterday that in Mexico... I think it was the Washington Post maybe put it out or New York Times. And they basically were saying the Mexican government saying, hey, we need to we as a country are continuing to produce this. You need to take care of this, your own problem, United States, and you need to deal with your addicts that are there. That's pretty much they've thrown their hands up. They've done the best that they can. And there are partnerships with Latin America. It's just none of this is really even making a dent. And obviously, given what's going on at the border, everything is coming north to us. And not just over the border. It's coming by land and sea and air. That's where we're at with that. Yeah, but let's take a look. We now have a pharmaceutical firm called Purdue Pharma that introduced oxycotin. Tell us what is oxycotin and what happened and why it became a drug crisis in America? So the FDA approved Oxycontin in 1996. Kind of bring you at least through the phases that I saw. In law enforcement, we, we didn't even see it until the early 2000s where people were abusing this. And we didn't even know how they were abusing it. To tell you a quick story, I had an informant and basically I had interviewed her and we were going to actually go and purchased some narcotics and they were Oxycontin. And I hadn't even seen an Oxycontin pill in my lifetime. And I told her, I said, hey, educate me about this Oxycontin. I said, how does this work? And she goes, we take these pills and we smash them up into powder and we snort them up our nose. She goes, listen, these pills are everywhere. And I'm like, okay. And the more that she talked about this, the more I was like, we have a serious problem. And this was about in 2000. So 
these pills were in abundance. We ended up making a purchase from this individual. And when I sat down and talked to him, he so you go from building block to building block. And he says, this is how it works. I get my prescription filled. We're going to say 90 pills a month. I get my brother to get pills. I get my sister to get pills. I get my mom to get pills. Okay. 80 milligram pills of Oxycontin were selling for $40 a piece. That's every month, right? So we're talking 4,000 each individual. That's 16,000 a month cash. If you remember back in the 2000s, it was $5 for a prescription at Kroger. So these people were able to do this. So this is how it got started. The doctors were told, and even the doctors were told, hey, do not do not fear people getting addicted, even though this is an opiate-based drug. The studies that were saying, showing and giving you the addiction, this is the greatest and newest thing, Oxycontin. They're not going to be addicted. We know now, in 2022, that was not correct. They had drug reps going in and saying it, and they were really pushing it onto doctors. And unwittingly, these doctors said, okay, and they did it now. We do know that some doctors created pill mills and these things started, but there were some doctors and dentists that went with the drug reps and went with the information that was given, and it ended up causing the problem. So they shut all the pills down, and we were discussing the perfect storm before. What happens is no more Oxycontin. Here comes heroin. Everyone's transitioning. You can no longer get Oxycontin. These people are addicts. And we roll into the nightmare of what we have today, which is 100,000 nationwide hearses a year and people dying. In 2022, Hamilton County alone had 484 overdoses of heroin. That, that's where we're at with that. Was Cincinnati part of the pain group I, medication? I would think that there were some. I don't recall any doctors that we investigated or targeted. I think those were all in different parts of Ohio where they were mm-hmm. actually just pumping out just pills after yeah. pills to the patients. Yeah, pain um, mills was really heavy in Scioto County, which is the city of Portsmouth. You got to remember that in the early 2000s, I don't recall if it was not online with medication dispersing. Everything was still a paper. Every You'd go in for many years and the doctor would write a script out on a piece of paper. Now everything's better tracked, accountable. Really? Because everything's through a computer now. You go to the doctor they directly go to Walgreens or Kroger through a computer. Very few people still use a paper, which a paper prescription, prescription. we saw for years. They were not able to talk to each other. So I, I think ebb and flow where they're actually trying to curb what, what is going on here through okay. through data and technology. There, what is this black tar heroin? And is it here in Cincinnati? So black tar heroin, it's a cheaper heroin than powder heroin or white heroin. And we didn't see it. We really didn't see it on this side of the eastern coast. It's about 40% pure where we were getting 70 and 80% purity in the powder heroin. And basically, and I don't think that we got it just because it just, there wasn't a mode of transportation to actually get it here. So we were just getting powder cocaine where basically the West Coast would be getting brown or tar, brown tar heroin. And I just think the country was split. So we were actually getting it from the source, whether that was through Florida up the coast, up 75, and black tar heroin was coming through Texas and pushing to, to the West Coast. We saw a huge influx of heroin. We just didn't see it at the task force being black tar heroin. We just saw heroin itself. 
Doug, you and your wife, Cindy, have worked in law enforcement. Cindy left police work and became a stay-at-home mom with her own business. Today, she serves in the Ohio State Legislature in a leadership role and has actively worked on law and regulations to help law enforcement. Tell us about Cindy and introduce your wife. So Cindy and I actually met while working. I was working at a department and she was working for the Cincinnati police and I actually met on the job. I wasn't working in narcotics at the time and we hit it off. But like you said, she has been doing politics here. She was a city councilwoman in Harrison and then she is now serves the 29th House District in Columbus in Ohio here. She's great. She is all about first responders without Further ado, I'd like to introduce my wife, State Representative Cindy Abrams. Thank you, Marianne, again for having us. Tell us, Cindy, about what state laws have been passed to help law enforcement. In our operating budget, we there was a lot in there, $250 million to public safety in all forms of topic safety grants, body armor, things like that. But for this podcast here, we had in the operating budget the Anti-Narcotics Initiative, So $26 million went to Recovery Ohio law enforcement to support anti-narcotics efforts. So again, talking about interdiction, they focus on the cartel trafficking interdiction to support local law enforcement. We have created, it's really exciting down here in Southwest Ohio region. It's a branch, it's called ONIC, Ohio Narcotics Intelligence Center. And basically what ONIC has done just in the last year They have helped and assisted our local law enforcement with 435 criminal investigations. The special agents there, they processed 497 requests for assistance and provided 486 workups for court. ONIC Forensics assisted over 747 cases just in Southwest Ohio here on 2,910 devices. So basically your cell phone absolutely helps law enforcement solve crimes and connect the dots. Let's say if we have someone who this was actually a real case that they shared with us, of course, no names or things like that, but they found a body, a dead body left on the side of the road and they had their cell phone on them and they were able to get into that cell phone and connect the dots where that person last was. And people take pictures, they send texts, their maps, everything is on that phone. So this ONIC helps law enforcement connect the dots and solve the crime when obviously the deceased cannot speak any longer. Again, I am 100% supportive of our law enforcement, obviously being an officer myself in the past and my husband and nearly all of our friends have served and are still serving here in law enforcement. Then we had crime reduction grants with the Department of Safety, again, in the operating budget, $4 million, and that's grants to local governments, okay, to help with crime And hiring, of course, we cannot find enough policemen, firemen at this point to even take the test, the new young men and women to take the test to be policemen and firemen. But we also pulled from the ARPA funds $45.9 million awarded to 132 law enforcement agencies around the state. They had to apply for the dollars through the Department of Safety. And again, it's mostly gone towards recruiting and retention at this point. We also provided $8 million in grants to local drug task force, different task forces across the state to offset the cost to do the job, essentially. It's expensive. And we, the state, understand that local government, obviously, we're all partners together, the local funds plus the state funds. And again, having enough people to do the actual job. One thing that I was very passionate about and helped 
get into the operating budget. Something you talked about earlier was when you were prescribed your Percocet and you had them here. You have grandchildren, obviously you have children and whatnot. And I'm blanking on the number right now, but it is very high. That is how people, the percentage of people that start their drug abuse is right here in the home medicine cabinet, the young people. So what we got into the budget is a pilot program and we're working with OMAS and it's a two-year pilot program. It's a locking pill vial. Okay, so you get the pharmacist is going to teach you how to use this. It's in participating pharmacies only. And we've targeted areas that prescribe a lot of Schedule 1, I'm sorry, Schedule 2 controlled substances. And basically, we're going to target those pharmacies. It's They're participating. They have to sign up to do this. And we are going to dispense. The state's going to pay for the locking pill vial. So the pharmacist will teach you how to use the pill vial. It's very easy. And you have a little code that type in there. And literally, the pill bottle will open. But only you can open that pill bottle. And some said, when we were having the talks, they said, well, Cindy, you know, what if somebody takes a hammer to it and smashes it open? And I'm like, then you're going to know someone got in your pills. So again, I believe it's going to help. I really do. And if we can prevent one young person from going through the pill cabinet and starting their addiction, then I believe it's worth it. So again, the locking pill vial pilot program is going to start here shortly. And then we have through the attorney general's office, the drug abuse response team grants, which is what Doug was talking about, the DART teams. Again, $3 million in total for them to expand their operations. We also had the law enforcement training funding commission, which I also helped to work on in the budget, which is to law enforcement has to take so many hours of continuing education every year. And they all do, every sworn officer across the state. So now we're, we heard from local government that, hey, we'd like to train our officers every year. And some departments that have the resources to do it, they actually do train their officers every year, but some don't have the resources. So sadly, those officers are just getting the bare minimum and whatever happens to be online or whatever. So now the vision is to have every officer across the state train the same and to have the same access to the top-notch, high-quality training that we're so fortunate to have here in Hamilton County in many jurisdictions. So that's something else that we've been working on. And then there was also a Senate bill that we passed and the governor signed, Senate Bill 25, which basically, again, it passed bipartisan support, and it increased the penalty for drug offenses knowingly committed near treatment centers or recovering addicts within 500 feet of the premises, and basically within so many feet also of a school, same thing. And all this does is say, listen, at these clinics where they're, where the addicts are going in and they're getting their medicine to try to wean themselves off these controlled substances, and these drug dealers, if we drive right now near any of these clinics, they are lurking around to try to, again, get them rehooked on the narcotics. So we have increased penalties there. And again, every little bit helps, but it certainly takes a team, again, with law enforcement. Cindy, you talk about training. Where are these training centers? Are they located across the state or just in Columbus? Where do they get the training? That's a great question, Marianne. So every officer has to go through OPADA, and that's the Ohio Police Officers Training Academy, essentially, and they set the curriculum every year, okay? So they set what the officers have to learn every year, the 24 hours of mandatory continuing education. So OPADA sets the curriculum, and then the local departments decide how best 
what works best for their department. So for example, the city of Cincinnati, through their police academy, trains all of their own officers. Again, the village of Evendale has their guys that are on the training staff, and they train their officers. They also go down to Great Oaks. That's a regional training facility, which OPADA has now granted five different regions across the state. And Great Oaks is one where, again, Hamilton County now sends their men and women through Great Oaks for training. Did I miss anything, Doug? No, I agree that the training is a must. And like you said, Marianne, these training locations, they'll even bring training in to your police department. They'll bring training wherever you need it to be. So especially with the narcotics, but all over the state, like Cindy said, there has to be a curriculum followed, but there are training all over the state, regional the training academies, correct? It's really a lot of money has uh, is being spent not only to train, but to help people that have become addicted or to preserve them from letting children get into their prescribed medicine. Cindy, you're on the November 8th ballot for the state legislature and representing the 29th district. What is the 29th district? The 29th house district goes from Coleraine Township. I'm going to say my new district because starting with this election in January 1, we just did redistricting. Coleraine Township, Mount Healthy, North College Hill, the city of Harrison Township, Whitewater Township, Crosby Township, North Bend, And I have a little sliver of Springfield Township, the North End, and I have a little sliver of Miami Township also. And each district is, we have to have so many people in each district. So that's why sometimes you have a little sliver here and a little sliver there. Yeah. Cindy, I'm hoping all our listeners will vote for you on November 8th who live in the 29th House District. Well, Doug, you're fortunate that you've got helpers in the state legislature. Purdue Farmer just was fined $6 billion by the courts, and much of that money will come to, or some of it will come to Ohio. What do you see that will help, or that presently is there to help addicts for treatment options for addicts? And I'll call with Cindy on this fall to her, because she took a, she took a tour of the cat house here last month, and it is it's a detox center. Say, what is the cat? What does cat stand for? Centers for addiction treatment. So we have cat here in Cincinnati. We also have Talbert House. Listen, we are again so fortunate, and the guys I serve with in Columbus are probably tired of me saying that Hamilton County. And we have a lot. We do a lot of great things down here that sometimes people don't even realize. So again, cat. They're down on Ezard Charles there. And they do a lot of great work in there helping not just the addict, but again, their family. And then Talbert House, same thing, inpatient, outpatient. And then also your locals, you have Coleraine Township, which started the QRT, the quick response team, which partners with a policeman, a fireman, and a person in healthcare. And they literally respond to the scene of an overdose. And it's not just about getting the addict who overdosed the help, but the whole family, because addiction does affect the whole entire family. Yeah, but Doug, don't you find you, you have somebody with an overdose and you they the first responders or police officers, I forgot what they get, NARCAR, NARCA, but then these people go right back and it's what, $1,000 a shot or something. I think we've moved a little bit more into the treatment phase of that rather than the enforcement phase. And what we were seeing is... and whether it's in Hamilton County or anywhere else, an addict would make a purchase in a lot of Walmart or a lot of Walgreens or in a lot of Arby's. 
And what they do is because they were sick or whatever, they'd shoot up right there and they would overdose, like you're talking about. The squad would have to come in and do Narcan. Those people wouldn't be arrested. Those people would go to the hospital, get checked out. The law has changed because we're trying to get people in the treatment. We're trying to get them diverted out of the court system, get them the help that they need. And like I had talked about before, I've had people sit in the back of the car and say, I want to get help. I want to get help. And it's 50-50. 50 of them wanted to get help. 50 of them were like, nope, the people you talked about, I'm going to go back and do it again. So I think with the cat house and these quick response teams to educate some people and say, listen, we can get you help. There's money out there that we can get you into a program, do this. That wasn't going on five years ago. That definitely wasn't going on 10 years ago. So every little bit helps. Education helps to these people saying, listen, you're not on your own. We can get you in a program and we can hopefully get you help. Going back to what you said, there are some people, a very small percentage, who they don't want the help. And it's very sad and it's very hard for the family to go through, but sometimes that does happen. But if you do want the help, and we are absolutely... There are so many resources available to help people. And I think one more thing that we have to mention is talking to our youth and really starting younger and younger, quite frankly. You know, the generations now, because of education and whatnot, they're not going to drive. They're not going to drink and drive. They're not going to smoke cigarettes because we've educated them on, hey, here are the consequences. And we have to talk about these prescription drugs that are legally prescribed that you don't go and you don't take a pill that someone hands you and you don't even know what it is. And you sure as hell don't snort it up your smush it up and snort it. No, that's not what we're doing. But we have to talk to our kids. And you can't be afraid to talk to them because they're going to learn it when they leave your house if you don't talk to them. Correct. And you two have two teenage sons, so you can't face the problem with just having teenagers. That's right. Correct. Boys are fun. I don't Correct. know anything about girls. I don't have sweet baby girls, but... These teenage boys are, they are fun. And I'm, that's what I'm going to leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> and we do, we talk, Marianne, we talk to them and we're no different than everyone else. And, you know, and Cindy and I talk about this. We know people that are our friends, that cops, kids, firemen's kids, good people's kids, as I air quote here, who fell either overdosed or and died or just overdosed. But this is across the spectrum. It doesn't matter, white, black. Rich, poor, it doesn't matter. This is this is addiction. It's terrible, and it's just trying to get people educated. But this runs the gamut ages of like 12 to 70. It doesn't matter. And now we're to the point of, hey, trying to put a Band-Aid on it, saying, hey, how can we get these people help? It does. Like Cindy says, we talk to the boys, and we even talk to the boys that, that, that come over to the house and say, hey, just try to educate them, saying that you can do this one time, and you're not going to come back. I want to thank both of you. In close, I want to thank you for both of you to taking a job as police officers and first responders, etc. We're grateful for all your work. This was a great podcast, and I think it'll help a lot of people understand what's happening with drugs in the city of Cincinnati. Not only illegal drugs, but the legal drugs such as OxyContin and even such things as Percocet and others. Thank you again. Thank you, Marianne. Thank you, Marianne. High Heels and Politics is produced by Marianne Christie and Ryan Kulik. Engineered by Ryan Kulik. Music by Sherrod Sate. Subscribe to High Heels and Politics on Google, Apple, Spotify, and all of your podcast networks.